Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it, and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Angela Kerwin spent over a decade working in some of the most notorious prisons in Britain, where she documented her experiences and the stories of the men she met in her book, Criminal. On this podcast, Angela told me the current prison system is failing the most vulnerable members of our society, as she discovered whilst working inside prisons. She believes that prison is not a separate world, but rather a place where the most damaged and vulnerable people in our society end up. Not only is the system ineffective, but it also contributes to habitual criminality, making society less safe and less humane. It is, she says, high time that the governments take notice of this issue and implement steps to improve the situation. So tell me, why did you write Criminal? Where did that come about? So I have worked in the social care sectors. I say worked, but since I was 13, um, I was a young care of my grandma. I worked my way from that kind of a slippery slope, from that to working with young men, not in education, employment, training, then into working with people with drug issues, mental health issues in the community. And I went behind the walls, I thought, I could make a real difference. I was kind of like, let's get to the root of the problem when people are free from drugs, when people are away from the chaos of the community. If I get behind the walls, I can make a difference. And I went behind the walls and realized the chaos inside is this magnified version of any issues we have in society. It's just magnified in custody. But I stayed there and I loved it and I did it. But 
more and more things happened to the prison estate. You know, we had in 2012, the amount of staff inside was like slashed by 30%. Spice came into the prisons. There was just self-injury, suicide, murders on the landings, stabbings on the landings. And I just realized I, as an individual, cannot make a change in this system at all. And that's where I had to step back and kind of look at what can I do here? And what I can do is write. What I can do is tell human stories and try and humanize the people in prison and try and make a difference by changing the conversation we have around prisons. There's a character in the book who, um, a guy who was on IPP, he was on an IPP sentence and I went to the parole hearing with him and he got knocked back and I quit about six months later. Is that when you left the system? Yeah, after because that. Because of he's knocked back? It was that combined with deaths, combined with um, real violent assaults going on in the prison, combined with because of those violent assaults, there was also escapes at that time. When you mentioned that yeah. you first went behind the wall because you wanted to make a real change, yeah. you're not changing the system, no. though. You're trying to change individuals or groups of individuals because I know, having read your book or most of your book, that a lot of the work you did was with groups as well as yeah. individuals. Yeah. So had you already set yourself up to fail? because your expectations of changing the system as opposed to individuals or did you believe at the time that by changing individuals you were changing the system? I didn't realise the system needed changing. I thought you could work within the system as is and have success with individuals. I really thought that within the system as it is, if you give people enough support, if they're motivated enough, if you find them a house on release, it will all be fine. And this realisation, yeah, it dawned on me just the system has to change. It was when one of my friends, about a year after working in prison, one of my friends asked me, like, what does success look like in your job? And I said, getting one person into rehab a year. And like, I had a caseload of 70 a week. We had, you know, I had hundreds and hundreds of men I worked with. And that's what I defined as success because the system sets you up to fail so much but I never realised that tell, until tell, tell me that's an important yeah. statement isn't it the system sets you up to fail so much yeah. what is it that it puts in your way what's the obstacle that makes that success reduce from the 70 clients to only achieving it with one if that I think that putting deeply traumatised troubled people who don't have who don't have the social safety net that we all have. Like, if I get in... Am I allowed to swear? If yeah. I get in shit, I've all, I know there's always a room at my mum's house. No matter, like, how much my mum's struggling for cash or whatever, there is somewhere safe for me to go. I've got people in my life who aren't involved in criminality or who aren't involved in drugs as this safety net. But we're putting these people who don't have any of that into this place that then is the most dehumanising disgusting place we could ever put them and then expecting them to reinvent themselves and and re, not even rebuild a life it, it, it's this idea of of okay we're going to put you in this cell with another man who's deeply troubled for 23 hours a day sort it out and what I really try to convey in the book is like the smells of prison the sounds of prison the noise the 
like prison gets inside your bones, you can feel it. And in that environment, you can't, you can't fix anything. Even if people weren't damaged in the first place, you couldn't fix them in that. Yeah. Do you think it's deliberate, Angela? Do you think because these, the, the, the prison system has existed for such a long time, lots of different methods have been tried and tested. I say lots of different methods. I don't think there are really. Not in my time, not today. You know, it's just different terminology, whether it's rehabilitation, whether it's caring or whatever it is. Do you think it's deliberate? Do you think that in your experience working in the prison that the obstacles that you came up against is designed to stop you achieving what it is you set out to achieve when you first went behind the wall? That's a really interesting question. I think one of the guys who was on your podcast earlier said that prison works symbolically and yet at the same time we underfund, under-resource it at every turn. It's like we're obsessed with prison as this solution to a problem yet we don't give it any funding, we don't give it any resources, we don't support the staff. But they spend, as you highlight, billions billions every year on the prison system. Or is that just the criminal justice system? I'm not sure. So this is just the cost of re-offending. Like, the cost to the country of just people who re-offend, which is 48% of people reconvicted in the first year. Um, Yeah, 20 billion on that. So do I think it's purposeful? I think we have to look at why we're privatising the prison sector and why private businesses are winning contracts to build, maintain and fill 20,000 more prison spaces in the next couple of years. But I don't think the mismanagement internally is purposeful. I think people who work in prison, 90% didn't go in with bad intentions. I think there are people within the system who really care. I've worked with amazing governors and deputy governors who allowed me to do my job. But if it's underfunded, if you've not got trained staff, if you're in a building that's literally got cockroaches in the, you know, cockroaches and vermin in the cells, let alone in my office when I worked in there, then you're on a sinking ship really, aren't you? But given that so much money is pumped into prisons and the criminal justice system's attachment to prisons, where is that money spent then? I mean, if it's not going to people like yourself who work in prisons, as staff who maintain the regimes and structures of prisons, um, as well as other people that have a, an interest in working in prisons, where's the money spent? I mean, I'm not expecting you to give me the answer. It's more like you had cockroaches in your offices, the cells had cockroaches. I used to, I remember cockroaches sliding down when I was in, I think it was Brixton, or it might have been Pentonville. I fucking remember the heaters because we have the pipes, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I remember the heat, the heating, the cockroaches used to gravitate towards the heat by outside my window, and then they'd come into my cell, and because you've got the slope, they'd slide down, and I could hear them hitting the floor when I was in the bed, you could hear sh- yeah. sh- cockroaches, and I just laid in my bed thinking, I'm not putting my feet on the floor. <laughs> So I hear you when you say say that. So where is the money being spent if it's not on improving the conditions and opportunities? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because it's what it's forty four thousand a year now to keep someone in prison, which is less than sending someone to Eton and giving them a house at the same time. So I honestly don't know where it's being spent. It's not being spent on meaningful activity or work training because especially after COVID now, people are behind the doors 23 hours a day. It's not being spent on 
the buildings, maybe it's being spent on maintenance of these old Victorians because they take so much to maintain, but there's still rats in there, there's still cockroaches in there, the windows are still broken, the toilets are still broken. I don't know where it's being spent when we look at those big figures. Who do we blame for that? Do we blame the prisoners themselves? Because if the toilets are broken, it's broken by a prisoner. If the window's broken, it's broken by a prisoner, mostly. So that's not to say that they shouldn't repair it because they're dealing with troubled men. Mm-hmm. But most people would think, wouldn't they, that, well, they made their bed, they, they lie in it. Is that right? Is that the right way of thinking? I think what's really interesting is, so there's a chapter in the book about Halden Prison, where you've been as yes, well. Yes, yes. And I really wanted to make clear that Halden Prison in Norway is beautiful, it's pristine, it's clean, it's quiet. They have metal cutlery, they have glasses. No bars. Um, no nothing. Bars, no and, and there's not a scrap of graffiti on the walls. There's not a reducing reoffending poster that's been torn down. And I thought about that and I was like, the men in here aren't any better than the men in our prisons in the UK. They're all in for the same sort of offences. So why are they behaving like responsible adults whilst the guys back home, if I've not nailed it down, they're nicking the pens I've left on the table and... Because they're not different people. So to me, that says something about how we treat people impacts how they behave and how they treat their surroundings. I said the same thing in Howden actually, that it was, I've been somewhere I think maybe slightly better now, not in terms of the structure mm-hmm. of the prison because I was blown away by it and thought, fuck, if I had to spend 12 years in prison, why couldn't it have been in somewhere <laughs> like this kind of thing? But I don't think that would have helped my mind. But I, I agree with you, it's because they treat people with humanity, right? Yeah. And we don't do that in this country, we don't treat our you know, marginalised people with the issues that we're talking about with, with that kind of humanity. We, we um, you know, demonise them in the newspapers. They're bad, they're bad, they're bad, you know, because that's what we do as a society. So do you think that the system itself, prison system, could improve if it treated people better than what you witnessed? Absolutely. I think that's, that's absolutely... We need to change our attitudes and our behaviours but I think the prison system could be improved if we stopped criminalising certain behaviours. I think so many people who are in prison shouldn't be in prison in the first place. And that's not to say that there aren't some very dangerous people in prison who've done very bad things, who, for the safety of the communities, need to be removed from those communities. But what I really try and highlight in the book is that the majority of people in there are in for less than six months, less than 12 months, for petty crimes that are related to substance misuse, mental health issues and trauma are through the roof. If we, instead of criminalising petty and persistent theft that's related to drug use, looked at drug problems as a health issue or dealt with that in a different way, there'd then be the capacity in the prisons to actually look at the rehabilitation of the very violent people and the very dangerous people. But right now, we're just dealing with the churn of damaged people. There's no time to deal with anything else. What's interesting, and, and I agree with you uh, 100%, but you and I know that the Seans of the world, so you, you, one of your characters, Sean, who is a larger-than-life character, I think that's one of the characters, right, Sean? Yeah, The larger-than-life yeah, yeah. character who's you know constantly at it. 
you know, how do you reach individuals like that? Because you can't address these. It felt to me like, and I've met so many of these Shawns, yeah. you, you know, real life in my work, most importantly in prison, although I was at maximum security prison, so very few of the kind of churn came through people doing 25 and up, you know, kind of thing. So it was a different kind of mentality. But the Shawns of the world are the most troubled and difficult to reach. And that's why when I was reading Sean, I liked his character because it felt like you got to him but then he lets go. And, and, and Sean, I'm just using as an example of so many others like, like Sean. Tell me a little bit about Sean and why individuals like that can be reached or can't be reached. So yeah, Sean is one of those petty and persistent offenders that is in and out, in and out. And he could be reached because he had energy and drive and charisma. I mean, like, if he just channeled that, if he just, if an entrepreneur gave him the opportunity to be a salesman, he'd absolutely fly at it. He'd be brilliant at it. But he's got these blinkers on that he's just channeled for so long that I'm just going to win at grafting. I'm just going to win at this and that to score the next, to score the next high. And people like that can be reached if you show them there's something beyond their such limited horizon and show them there's another option and show them life can be fun without drugs and without crime because that's another thing isn't it we're asking everyone to stop using drugs to stop committing crime but then what but then what because taking drugs can be really fun that's why people take drugs but then we're asking them to what to, to live in a bed sit and not get a job and and not have any mates anymore i think it's really important to show people that life can be really great without that lifestyle. And I think we miss that a lot. We kind of expect them to stop that lifestyle, but don't actually give them another good version of what life can be. I think we really miss that. And I think there's rehab facilities around the country where they do these like outward bound activities and kayaking and rock climbing and all these kind of things. And I just think that shows people that you can have fun and be something other than just this person who's grafting 24 hours a day to score drugs, to rob for drugs, to do this and that. It can give people the excitement and the opportunities that aren't just sitting in a bed set. And they're far and few between yeah, and those absolutely. that get access are, are limited. So the Shawns of the world, because I think the public's perception is that all these things are available for prisoners if they really want to change. And you and I know, and anybody who knows anything will agree that it takes the individual. You know, we hear that more often than not, don't we? No matter what you put in front of them, no matter where you lead them, until they're ready to change, they won't change. You know, that's tried and tested. I'm trying to understand how the system fails those who, like Sean, attract in this prison environment you recognise that they have this entrepreneurial ability if only someone would step in. Mm -hmm. Someone like yourself steps in to do the work that you do, but it's not your job to deliver the opportunities for them, is my understanding of it. So where are these people in prison? Who are these people that should be in prison providing this, this doorway to a new opportunity? Because it sounds to me like that door doesn't exist, which is why so many Shawns end up coming back in prison. But the perception is, I think, among the public, is that these things are available, but prisoners don't want it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, that you assume that 
if you ask for help with your substance misuse issues, you're going to get a place in rehab. And this is where the issue of prison is this issue that should impact everyone. It's not just about what's going on behind the walls because it's community funding. It's our community funding has just been slashed and burned that you have to apply for funding to go to rehab. You have to prove that you're not a lost cause. You have to prove that you're going to do it and succeed. And, and how do you prove it if you haven't done it, if you haven't tried it yet? And then the funding has to go in front of a panel. There's only a limited amount of funding in each borough each year. So only a limited amount of number of people can go. So, so even to get to the stage where you will be given the, the funding by your local authority to go to a rehab facility, even though we know in the long term, if that person stops using drugs, how many future victims will be, it will be stopped from being victims? How many future thefts or burglaries have we stopped? There isn't any of that long-term thinking. It's just, this is the pot of money for the year for rehab. If we haven't got it, we haven't got it. So I think whilst we're looking at prison here and I talk about all these situations in prison, you've got to, you've got to fund the community services. You've got to fund our communities to, to divert people away from prison in the first place. That's an important element, isn't it? There are others that, are, that pose a different challenge. Kai, I think, was one yeah. of the characters who, you know, you had a three-man unlock. Tell me a little bit about how... And I'm always bringing it back to the system fails, but if you think it's not a failure, then say so. I'm just kind of mm -hmm. keeping in tune with the kind of you are accused, and I'm taking it, Angela, no, from your book that you accuse the system of failing, not just the prisoners, the people like yourself who work in prisons, yeah. the staff, as well as society and, and the bigger picture, which is victims, because yeah. that's what it's all about, isn't it? But Kai, as I read it, was a character who was extremely violent, and was being held in the sort of isolation segregation not only for his own good but more for other people's yeah. good but you get through the work that you do you you get through to individuals just tell me a little bit about Kai and how important the work that you do and others can be to changing individuals like him so yeah Kai was on three man unlock um, for a very long time Kai was known for being incredibly violent, came off the van fighting, pulling out blades, kettling people at his old prison. He was ghosted into us um, because his now old... Now you're using terminology Sorry, that yeah. I understand, but I know people listening yeah. to this won't. So let's start with three-man unlock. What does that mean? So essentially his cell door couldn't be opened without three officers in full riot gear with shields and helmets um, to unlock him because of the risk he posed of violence to staff kettling. and prisoners. Kettling, um, boiling a kettle of hot water, sometimes putting some sugar in it as well to throw over someone and burn them, yeah. But you found a different character the, the, to, to this extreme description of, of Kai. Yeah, I mean, this, this is where, like, I, I don't want to excuse his behaviour at all. He was violent. I was scared of him to begin with. I was really cautious, even through a locked door, because I was like... He could throw anything out at me. He could, if I'm close enough leaning in to talk to that door, if he's got a blade in there, it can come through the door. So I was scared of him. He was violent. But we can't just lock a violent person in cell for 24 hours a day and expect them to get better. So my job involved for the first few weeks, just going up to the cell door and talking to him every day and just talking to him, seeing how he was. If I said I'd turn up, I'd turn up. 
talking about how he was feeling that day, talking about if there were any issues going on for him. And this is where I think when we base our key performance indicators and results on reducing reoffending, we miss this whole person-centered approach of things where we treat people like people and you see these little changes from going from a situation where Kai could not have his cell door opened without officers with shields to him and me being able to be on the yard together alone. That's a huge improvement. That's a massive improvement. But that's not really measurable. That's not seen as progress in any real way by the government, by data, by statistics. Why? Why isn't it? Because surely you're I don't know, documenting his progress through the work you've been doing with him, the fact that he is able to walk around and exercise the yard with you on his own. Surely the authorities are taking note of that progress and how that was made because of how you, you know, the relationship you developed with him, recognising some of his challenges, I, I suspect. I mean, I know it from the book that surely there is some way of capturing that data so that they can continue to progress, not just him, but other kinds. Mm -hmm. I think there will be data on like reducing assaults, reducing self-injury, but on the whole, ultimately, Kai violently assaulted someone again after we'd been working together, and that's perceived as failure. That's perceived as the intervention hasn't worked, whereas I see if we take very violent people who've been in very violent lifestyles for 20 years of their life, that's not going to change overnight. And progress isn't linear. There are going to be periods where we can make improvements and then there will be times people revert to their own worst tendencies. But each stage is a step forward. But I don't think that is quantifiable when a prison's waiting for an inspection and a prison's, and a prison's just hoping to say that their assaults are down or that their time of prisoners in the segregation unit is to a minimum. I think the pressures they're under from government, from the inspectors, stops any real focus on that long-term thinking. Yeah. What I, what I, what I, as I listen to you and I read your book, you have such a, a deep insight and a deep understanding of the, the challenges that, that prison um, poses, but more than that, I think, I think your connection with, with these issues are quite profound in that you explain them very clearly. Why is that? Why is it that you've been able to connect with not just the system and its failures and the prisoners and their challenges? Where does that come from? Like on a personal level? Yeah. So. My family are, I wouldn't say very political, but I've always had a political upbringing. On a Sunday, we're as children expected to engage in conversations around politics, around what's going on around the world. It's um, a really good tip. Yeah, it really, really awesome. And my family are Irish heritage, so there's always like a political element there that was brought in. Yeah, I am. Um, one of my earliest memories is my mum having me with a placard on my knee protesting against the closure of a local hospital. So we were very working class. And at the time, I thought we were proper poor until I went into prison. and I realised what proper poor was and what proper poverty was like. 
so it's not a sob story like that, it's not at all. But this political awareness was always there. And it was a political awareness of, of working class rights, of, of working class stories, of looking after your community, looking after people. It was, in my house, like a real support of the welfare state. And I think that combined with then being a young carer for my grandma, and watching how someone so my grandma had dementia and it took like a long long time to kind of take hold and for her to eventually pass away like 10 15 years of decline and watching someone who couldn't advocate for themselves living in a tower block on the estate and having to fight for like meals on wheels for her and having to fight for the support she needed that made me really aware of the system and aware of the faults in the system. So yeah, that's probably on a personal level why. And then when people say to you, well that colours your judgement, when you go into, and it's a good coloured judgement in my view, but you know those who think, well that colours your judgement when you go into prison and you come across the characters or you work in a system that has a certain way of doing things like prisons, they have regimes, they have you know reward and punishment, they don't do the things they're supposed to do because you know they'd rather invest in things in the community or that's what they say but they do that so when people think that your judgment is colored by your personal experience by the things you you know learnt as a young adult now working in a prison and they say you don't see the bad in the bad person how do you respond because you blame the system. I say you blame the system, but blaming the system is the easy way out. It's not Kai who was, it was the three guards treating him like an animal, so he had to live up to that reputation. It wasn't Sean ducking and diving constantly because he wanted to, it's because that's how the system wants him to navigate. I don't think it's my job to punish people in prison. It's not my job to judge them. If I choose to do a job like that, then, I can't go in judging people based on their offences. A lot of the time I didn't look up people's offences before I met them for the first time. I don't think it's relevant. I think they're inside and I've got to work with from where we are and what we've got. There were times I really questioned it. There were times when I didn't know if I could keep doing the job because I got really angry at people's certain offences or things that had happened to me and my family, I got really really angry at criminals and I had to have a word with myself I was like you can't do the job if you're going to judge people by their worst behaviours you've got to you've got to judge people as the person they are in front of you I just wanted to let you know that the Second Chance podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast so if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals check it out I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow this podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe, follow and like buttons wherever you listen to the Second Chance podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that would be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. There was the story you share about the sex offender. Yeah. And I really appreciated how you articulated that because it's one of the areas that I struggle with most, you yeah. know, during my time in prison. 
sex offenders were segregated and it was, you know, nonce, 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 whenever they came in the sight of other prisoners. I witnessed so many being kettled and worse. And even now in my work as a journalist, for many years when I walk into a room and I know the individual is in for rape, I can't stretch my hand out and shake their hand because I don't want to touch the hand of a man who's done something with his hand. Yet I will for a murderer. I'll stretch my hand out and shake the hand of a murderer, which some people would deem even worse. So we all have our own moral compass. But you shared... You, the story in your book about this particular sex offender, which is one of the first challenges, I don't think this was the one where you, you knocked on the door and got chased out. No, not that one. This sex offender, mm-hmm. I think this was one of the first cases. It's it? the first time I went into prison was to meet a sex offender. I was doing community work and I was preparing for his release and that's my first time. Tell me about that and why your view changed or, or, or your perception of, of what was important because I think you summarised it very clearly that, you know, like all the other prisoners, they will get out. Yeah. My first time inside a prison was into a big old Victorian. I was probably 20 years old. Thought that I could work with, like, the worst offenders ever. I was like, I've got this job, I can do this. And I had no idea. I wasn't trained, I wasn't qualified. I didn't have the skills to manage such a complex person um, and with hindsight I'm like what was what was I thinking I could do this job but I went in and it was a horrible experience I was at no physical threat whatsoever this guy was tiny like I could have taken him on but there was a big officer outside the room and he was able to take control of the conversation. He was able to to always take it back to his offending behavior. I wasn't able to stay in control of the conversation. And it really shook me. And not, not in like, it shook me be, just because it was a horrible event, but because I thought, if I can't work with sex offenders, I don't think I can work with any offenders. I don't think in my job you get to pick and choose. I think if you say that you believe in the good in people, if you say that you believe people can rehabilitate, you have to hold that belief for everyone until you meet an individual as an individual. So I really had to have a big chat with myself about whether I could even do the job after that. And I know that I wrote the chapter about sex offenders because that's the question I'll get asked, but what about the paedophiles? But what about the pedos? Is what the chapter's called. And the sad, sad thing is, is that we are not rehabilitating these people. We are either locking them on vulnerable persons units for a limited amount of time, then releasing them, and they are still a danger to your children, to your families, to our communities. Or, which is the worst thing which I found when researching the book, we ran, or do still run, sex offender treatment programs in prisons and the reoffending rate after people have attended those programs is higher than had they not. So we are doing more harm than good. How does that work? I have no idea. There's lots of different theories about why it is. Things like it can teach people to mask their behaviours and say things that professionals want to hear. It can teach people how to falsely show empathy, this kind of thing perhaps. But these treatment programmes don't work. And that's what we're doing in prisons at the moment. We're putting people on treatment programmes that don't stop them from reoffending, and then they'll get released out into the community. Not just sex offenders, but any offender. So particularly the sex offender treatment programme doesn't work. That's the one that's shown that 
people are more likely to reoffend having been on it. It's a scary thought. Yeah, isn't it? we and this is where I appreciate I'm not going to get the general public feeling sorry for sex offenders. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is like look at the data, look at the stats, look at the evidence, and rationally say how do we make our community safer and the way we do that is with evidence-based research with programs that actually reduce reoffending. we don't just resort to these headlines and these sound bites because that doesn't make us any safer it doesn't but this is why i i, I recognize your book as an important book because it's it's taking on and questioning and highlighting those issues and i think it's important because as you've just said you know um these things fail because they're not the investment the resources are not put into them but the data the statistics and all the information you know reoffending rates yeah. have existed for so long the governments know yeah. that these programs projects or the way that they're doing it does not work has never really worked it might tick a few people's boxes and change a few people but for the vast majority including the sex offenders it doesn't so what can be done? I mean, what, what do they need to know? How much do they need to know? That's what I struggle with more than most. Yeah, and my, my kind of argument for this is these Victorian prisons have stood in our city centres since Victorian times, since the 1840s. If incarceration as a system would have worked by now, it would have worked by now. And it's not. We are still a high crime society. There is no link between increased incarceration rates and reduced crime levels. Therefore, we need to look at a different approach because any criminal justice system that puts incarceration front and centre of its response has failed and will continue to fail if we use incarceration as our method of making our community safer. Even if it follows the model of somewhere like Halden in Norway where incarceration. I don't know if the criminal justice system's policies lock them up and, you know, that's it. But what they do once they've got them in that environment is they provide them with, you know, the opportunities that does, you know, tick the recidivism rate or the reoffend, reduce the recidivism rate and reoffending rate. So even where there is a system, a prison where they can do much, much more to work with prisoners, you don't think it's the right thing? So yeah, I do. I think that is the right thing. And this is where in Norway they don't put prison and incarceration as like the central approach, as their central focus. So our statistics here are in Scotland, England and Wales between like 139 to 150 people per 100,000 are in prison. Whereas in Norway it's 50, 55 in the 100,000. So they already just lock up half the people we lock up, which shows that there are other options available for other people but for those who do need prison for those who to keep society safe for a time need prison a system that's not overcrowded a system where rehabilitation is the focus can then work and i think this is where i'm saying like let's take incarceration as like the only option available to us because it's not because even in britain community sentences are proven to be more effective at reducing reoffending than than short sentences under 12 months, yet we underfund and underutilise them. And, and it's cheaper. Yeah, and it's really cheaper. Sense, it's, it's yeah. Not cheap, and that's yeah. probably why it doesn't work, because the government wants to spend more money. 
on their pals who probably have a connection. And there's this narrative, isn't there, that they must be the party the toughest on crime. There's this deviation to this narrative that to say anything else is like political suicide. And what I'm really trying to do with this book is I'm not even trying to change people's minds. I'm just trying to open up the conversation so it's not just prison works tough on crime. Let's just look at some other options. But doesn't that scare you more because it's what I've been doing for 20 years or, or longer <laughs> and you know that they hear you. You know that they read what you have to say or watch what you've done in, in, in my case and yet they ignore it because this, this narrative, this rhetoric of being tough on crime reaches a particular audience in this country that thinks that's the right answer because they haven't been exposed to your book where if you said to them your hard-earned tax money was spent on A, B and C you wouldn't have to fear what it is you're being told you have to fear from the Shawns or Kai's of the world that you mentioned in your, your book. So it's, it's pretty evident. Remind me again what the overall message is from your book and I know you just sort of said you want to change the perception and change the, the narrative but you use some really powerful characters to tell those stories whether it's the sex offender whether it's Kai Sean's or, or some of the other characters that, that I've met along the way as I've been reading what, what's the big message that you want people to take away from it? This is always the hard part to describe what my book's about isn't it? I think there are two things and one is to show the people behind the walls and to show that these people are the ones who are in prison. So you can see the headlines of, you know, the 65 people who are on whole life license, of the really, really violent people who've done hideous, hideous things. But actually, they're such a small percentage of the prison population. The rest are these stories of these guys who are just making a series of bad choices because of a series of bad events in their own lives. And I want to show that prison is not full of these terrifying, scary people we see in the papers. It's full of the 60,000 people that get sentenced every year to these short sentences and show that they're real people and show that if we were in similar circumstances to them, we may have made some of the same choices they've made. There's, um, there's a chapter on a homeless guy I worked with a lot and my real thing from that is that there but for the grace of God go I. If you're just a couple of missed rent payments away from, from a series of bad events happening in your life. So I want to show that humanity of people and show that they're not different from us. They're just in different circumstances. And then the, the big message I suppose is I don't want to just be preaching to the choir. There are people who care about the humanity and the compassion and think that we should treat people like that. I also really want to show those people who have never really thought about it that your tax money is being wasted, that we are spending billions every year on a system that is broken, is making our societies less safe, is is making our communities less safe, that's perpetuating more violence, more crime. And I want to show people that care about law and order and people who care about where our tax money goes that prison does not work as well. You talk very, very succinctly, very hard, very focused 
and a lot of it's based on your experience yeah. working in yeah. prison, witnessing things for yourself. So it's not like an academic book by by any means. I think it's been likened to, the, you know, the bestseller. I think it was called what was it called? Barrister, not barrister. The secret barrister. The secret yeah. barrister. Because anybody who's read that book, and I know lots of people in this space and outside of this space have, I would recommend this for for the opposite reason, not the opposite reason, but it gives you an insight into prisons and the criminal justice system that I don't remember reading a book that does. So, you, you, you know, and I, I'm not a big book reader, but I do know about the criminal justice system. But my point is this, Angela, you you talk very passionately from your experience. How much of the insight you have comes from outside of, and I don't mean your personal journey because you shared that, mm-hmm. but I mean in terms of your research mm-hmm. alongside your first-hand experience. So I was really lucky to get a big research fellowship that allowed me to travel abroad to go and research what works in other prisons. And also the people in the prison I worked at at the time were really supportive of that. I had good people from prison staff to healthcare staff to my manager who let me go away and research other systems and see what works in America and Norway. And that was just such an eye-opening experience especially going to america because in my head i was like this research is going to be norway's amazing england's a bit in the middle and america's like horrendous and i went to america and they were doing some real innovative work out in the communities they were doing evening running crews that kept kids off the streets they had um, people on electronic tag who worked in a food bank They were doing some really, really good stuff in America. So yeah, so this whole research project opened my eyes a lot to the bigger issues of what's going on and writing up that research and trying to figure out how we could implement that was where I started to really build my knowledge around like the system as a whole and my understanding of the data and the numbers around it, yeah. Important stuff. One thing we've not really touched on is the actual work you did when you were in prison, right? Because, like you say, you trained as a social worker or care worker. Social worker, yeah. Social worker. And then you go into prison, but you had a specific role, didn't you, from what I'm reading? I'm sure it involved much more than that. But when you went in, what did you go in to do? So I went in to begin with in the drugs team, in the drug and alcohol substance misuse team. Then that evolved into what we would call a dual diagnosis role, which is I would work with people with mental health issues and substance misuse issues combined. That then morphed into working with the top most disruptive prisoners. It morphed into maybe the people who weren't psychiatrically unwell, because I wasn't a psychiatric nurse, but the people without a diagnosable mental health issue, but the officers definitely thought they had a mental health issue, combined with disruptive behaviour. So I ended up with this caseload of the disruptive, in whichever way you want to term disruptive, whether that was aggressive to other prisoners, whether that was self-injury, they were my caseload. What would you do with the prisoners? So my, the one thing that I think that was the most effective was group work. And a lot of the time it took a lot of one-on-one work to convince them to come to groups. But I ran groups Um, in a couple of different prisons most mornings um, usually off the substance misuse wing and they were open access so you didn't have to 
have any specific diagnosis. You didn't have to be working with the drug team. You just came to the groups and we started with a check-in every morning. How's everyone feeling? What do people want to talk about today? And it became a real safe space within the prison. And people came back every day or in between the shifts, they'd take time off work on the wings so they could come to the groups. And it was a space where we talked about how could you change your lives and talked like you and I are talking now, talked me in a room of 15 guys, just getting real really. How do you, how do you separate, um, I'm asked this question all the time when you listen to the stories of prisoners, you know, some really traumatic, horrible yeah. stories or some really violent things that they've done. How were you able to, to separate your existence once you got out with the work and the professionalism you had to perform whilst you were in prison? Because it's not easy, is it? No, and I think most staff would say there is the psychological wall goes up. Mm. There, is, there is the prison face, isn't there? There's a prison body language and you carry yourself that way all day. And that mask is there to protect you mentally, to stop you from taking on too much of what's going on. It's a really hard question. I think most staff don't deal with it very well. I think there's a, there's a bit in the book about the mental health of staff. Like I personally dealt with it by, I was really into sport. So I'd, I'd do like marathon training, I'd do triathlon training, I'd be in the gym every day. And I, thought, I did find yeah. it quite weird when you talk about it. I don't, I don't, I'm almost reading the whole book to the listener, but I did find for a moment, you know, I spent many, many moons in, in segregation, isolation. I don't remember anyone coming in that space and doing press-ups with yeah. it, like you did with, I think it was with Kai, Kai yeah. where you were working out. That was one of these, or your methods of getting him to yeah. release some of the tension, which I'm sure he, he did anyway. So it was sport. You were able to use right. sport to escape. Yeah, definitely. But I think... I think even now, I think prison affects me. I think, you know, I'm, I've picked the chair with my back to the wall, haven't I? I've picked my, so I can see the door. I think a lot of staff, prison gets inside you and there isn't the space for staff to talk about that. I mean, I was lucky because I was the woman who walked around the prison saying like, let's talk about our feelings. Like, so if I needed to ask for help, I could quite easily ask one of the one of the nurses or someone trained in psychology, like, can I have a half an hour chat with you? I just want to debrief a little bit. So I think it was easy for me to ask for help in that way. Interestingly, you, you also talked about the prison guards, you just talked about yeah. their struggle with mental health issues, working, putting the wall up. Yeah. You know, you talk about a couple of stuff, it's just unhelpful. What was your relationship like with the staff and what's your takeaway now you're no longer working in the prison about these men and women that do work in prison um, even if they started out with good intentions, I suppose my, my you know, I, I was in an era where it was them and us, there was no names, it was strictly them and us, you know, I despised them, they despised me in all fairness, and for the best part, most prisoners didn't like guards and guards didn't like prisoners, you know, we coexisted where we had to, but there was always confrontation. Could you ever say, like, did you see officers who were kind, who cared when you were inside? Um, that's a really difficult one. I, I think, yeah, but it was so limited. Yeah. But remember, I did the years very differently to the yeah. guilty man who needed something from the guards. I didn't want anything from them. So my relationship was very different. And the only time they showed signs of any kindness towards me, 
was nearer the end of my sentence where the publicity around my miscarriage of justice made them yeah. think, hold on, this guy who's been a for so many years, there is some substance in all he's been saying because the newspapers were now saying it, documentaries were now saying it, lawyers were saying it, I had a new appeal. So it only came about their humanity, in my experience, mm -hmm. when they really started to believe that maybe I was in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Mm -hmm. But your relationship with staff and the people you came across, what was that like? Do you believe, I suppose, is the second part of that question, do you believe that, that they are doing what they should be doing? I think that culture comes from the top and I'm like within a prison culture comes from the top. So I, in one of the places I worked, there was an incredible set of management in there who wanted to do new things and wanted to do good things. Um, and I think that did trickle down to the staff and the behavior of the staff. And then I've worked in other places where I don't think I was welcome in the segregation unit. My presence was not required there and not deemed necessary. I think now that the wages are so low of prison staff, the things that they have to do every day um, for the wages they receive without the support they receive is you're fighting a losing battle there as well. I think that without the kind of training that we see with staff in Norway, you're never going to get staff who are able to manage themselves as well as being able to manage prisoners at the same time without that intensive long-term training and a culture shift from the top. It's interesting because I spoke to a prison officer, Sam Samworth, who wrote a book not too long ago about his time in mm -hmm. prison. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with yeah, this yeah. guy. And he himself, as many other ex-prison workers, whether it's staff or 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 or, or screws prison officers they're all quite critical and that's what i find most fascinating is no one comes out and writes a book about how brilliant prison yeah. is so why have we not got the message i mean that that's that's the one of the interesting things he was critical of the system his take is obviously very different because he wore a uniform which is different from from how you spent your time inside and that's that's a tricky one isn't it because it is a job to to them um it pays their bills and wages but they deserve more than what they receive, whether it's financial reward for the work that they do or that they've got the right numbers to do the job that they need to do. I mean, I know that they've introduced these kind of graduates and there's a whole different approach in some places towards um, how you treat prisoners. Some of them wet behind the ears and it's interesting because, as you know, prisoners... And, and the other way around with that, the problem with officers being too soft is then prisoners don't feel safe if order isn't kept they don't feel safe from other mm. prisoners mm -hmm. so it is it's a real balancing act there isn't it and do you think that prison officers see it the way you see it that prison is is failing not just those who come through their doors and then come out the other end and then just come back in again or do you think they don't give a shit? i think some really give a shit. i think some really really do i think some are there to pay the bills and I think some because our training isn't like the Norway staff where they have these lectures in law and ethics and philosophy they don't know what prison's for none of us know what prison's for so as I say I had a political upbringing mm. where I'm taught to ask well what is it for what's the purpose what's the philosophical purpose of a prison I don't think many people think like that I don't think many officers walk into work being like what is the key fundamental purpose of my job but that's because we don't educate our officers to think in that way. 
because no one knows what the purpose of prison is. It's not for deterrent, because it doesn't work as a deterrent. It's not for rehabilitation, because it doesn't work for that. It may be for incapacitation, but I think we both know, and lots more evidence is coming out, that actually there's loads of organised crime going on between the walls and the communities anyway. So is it just for retribution then? And if it is, the officers are just unlocking and locking a door and actually they're doing what we say that prison is for. They're just locking and unlocking a door. What's the solution? Is there a solution? Yes. I think it would be really sad if we didn't have any solutions. So my ideas would be to decriminalise drugs, to make sure people who have problematic drug use can get the support they need in the communities and are not criminalised for their behaviours around substance misuse. I think, we've not even covered it here, but IPP is just this, this is a quick and easy win. Let's re- let's recategorise at least the 2,000 men and women who are on IPP sentences at the moment in prison. I think that anyone on a sentence of under 12 months, it's proven that community sentences work better. So I'm not saying don't punish these people. I'm not saying don't give them a sentence. But if a sentence out in the community where they can give back, where they can they can learn a job that then allows them to be an active member of commu- of the community in the future, this is the kind of sentence we need to be doing because it works. So short sentences out in the community, and then then we have you know the the half the prison population. I don't think we should ever have anyone in an old Victorian prison. I think that. It's a disservice to the staff to make them work in those conditions, let alone sleep in them at night. Um, I think we should move everyone out into buildings that are fit for purpose. I think we need to provide our staff with training. And it all sounds so expensive, doesn't it, when I'm throwing out all these ideas. But well, it's, it's, it's more about diverting the resources yeah. they already have, yeah, isn't exactly. it, sometimes? You know, instead of spending the vast amount they do on keeping one person who shouldn't be in prison in prison, you could use half of that money to deal with them in the community and the other half to provide, I don't know, a rehab centre on the outside for drug needles, whatever it is. And it's keep going back to that because it's cheaper as well. Even if you don't care about the people, it's cheaper and it works better. So, yeah. Last question from me. Why did you leave? Why did you jump out in the end or was you pushed out? I mean, why, why did it come to an end for you? This, this important work that you went in with this you know, idea and ideology that you were going to help make a difference. And no doubt you have made a difference because you've come out and you've written this book and you're giving people and sharing your insight. But why did you leave? It became impossible to do my job. And anyone who worked in prison, kind of from 2012 onwards, will know how the staffing figures meant that I couldn't even get guys unlocked for group. Like, I don't carry keys to open cell doors. I wasn't nine times out of ten there weren't enough staff to open up the wing to come to my groups there were so many weapons fines so many assaults that a wing would be closed down for four days couldn't do my job i was assessing whether people were going to commit suicide through a locked cell door at times and i just thought this is this is impossible you can't carry hope and positivity and change lives through a locked cell door i just couldn't do my job because of the circumstances of what was going on in prison at those times. It's a real shame, yeah. isn't it? And so you left? Yeah. And wrote your book? Left and wrote my book. Do you yeah. still work in the space, though? I'm still very connected to a lot of people that work in the space. And with writing my book, 
I never wrote this book to write a book. I wrote this book because I had to in a way. I just had to write the story down. But since I got a publishing deal with it, I've been very, very aware that I want to use whatever platform I get to like highlight the work of what's going on in the communities, what people are doing, what's working. So I'm really making a big deal out of the work that's happening in the community. So I'm running events around my book that actively involve people who are still working in the sector to give them a platform and to give them a voice because that's really important to me. We need to highlight what works. We need to do more of what works. Totally agree. Yeah. I don't have any more questions. Is there anything that we've not talked about that you want to mention, either about your book, about your previous work, or anything that we've not touched on, or anything you want to clarify or, or mention before I turn off the recorder? Do you think, on this note, do you think people deserve a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance? Because men like Sean and... Kai and some of the other guys and girls that you would have met along the way don't often get given a second chance or maybe their second chance was getting away from an abusive father or sexual abuse or whatever it is you know their second chance was taking drugs but you know then they end up in prison people think they don't deserve a second chance but their second chance came a long long time ago do you think what do you think about second chances fifth chances hundred chances yeah I think you've got to keep trying haven't you I think that if you want to be, so if I want to be a part of a community and a part of society, you don't just leave people behind who aren't functioning quite so well in that community or society. Yeah, I believe that fundamentally people are good and I believe that people make really stupid choices and do really bad things, but fundamentally I believe that most people in the world are good and they deserve chances. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Quick reminder that our YouTube channel can be found at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates and new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in.